Hello, this is Bryce Hancock. Uh, we're on Mile High Recovery Chat. I'm here with Chris Edrington from St. Paul Sober Living. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. So I know Chris uh, back in 2016. I talked, it was 2015, and I talked to Andrew Wainwright, and I said, I want to open a sober house, but I don't really know what it is. And he said, You got to come to St. Paul. <laughs> My friend Chris owns, I don't know what he said, 12 or 14 of them, and we're going to send you to Sober House School. And that there is no Sober <laughs> right? That's what he said. There's no Sober House School, but I came, and right. I met you, and I saw the whole thing. And uh, it, I mean, it was it honestly blew me away. Like, uh, it, it, like, it set the spark in me that made me, like, like, I don't know, like, I had a new purpose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I remember that you were, and you and you hit my office at a very good a good time because we were we were moving pretty fast with our new plus program and there was a lot of staff and a lot of stuff you could absorb. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was great. And like Craig Lasur says, man, he he said, you know, with St. Paul Sober Living, you get you get Chris too, and he's like a maverick and he's a renegade, and you get the dog and your truck, <laughs> and it's like a, it's a whole vibe. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, well, that's kind of what you know. What we do, and I did, I do that sometimes with marketers. Sometimes makes an impact. I have a friend trying to sign on. She says it's not working. Uh, she's trying to sign on to the wrong thing. Just tell her to go to uh, Facebook. Uh, and there, there's no hurry. We can just go ahead. Just go and to search, my and search you. Yeah, or you can go to my Facebook and and just share it to your page. It's live on there right now, and then okay. you can just share it to your page. <clears throat> um, I try that, but I don't even know how to do that. So I'll do it. Uh, so anyway, um, so talk talk to me about because you're, I mean, you're like me, basically. You're, you know, you're in recovery, and you're on, you're an entrepreneur at heart. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I found that out in the process. Okay, and so yeah. you got sober, and I'm guessing you didn't set out to like create the best, biggest sober living company in the country or the world. No, you just, it I'm just sure. happened, right? I didn't have a vision. I didn't have a, any vision. I, I landed in Minnesota. I found, I got lucky because I found a guy who I had used to use with in Boulder that was sober, and he knew everyone, and he knew everything. His name was John Vanderslice. He's since passed. He went back out and he didn't survive. But, you know, early on in the process, he showed up at my treatment center. I was in Minneapolis. I didn't know anybody. I, I, I went to Minneapolis because I knew a girl that lived there. I didn't go to get sober. I ended up in treatment there because I used in her house and she threw me out. So I ended up, I ended up in uh, detox and then treatment on the county. And uh, this guy walked in the treatment center to do service work there. He would pick guys up on Saturdays and give them painting and jobs on his little construction crew as, as service work. And he picked up this guy that was in my treatment center. Guy comes back after the end of the day and says, hey, my the guy I was working for thinks he knows you. I was talking about this long-haired junkie from Colorado, and he thinks he knows who you are. He's standing outside. I walked outside. There was my buddy John, and he was like, come with me. And he took me over to St. Paul and introduced me to everybody and got me connected and that sort of organic model after other sober people concept. What year? 
That was 98. August of 9 August of 98. I didn't get out of treatment. It was actually not until like November, August, September. I was in treatment for two or three months, but the short version, Bryce, is that that process and that way of doing sobriety, he said, I'm just going to introduce you to a ton of people who are going to be in your corner and we're going to meet a lot of people and we're going to hang out with a bunch of alcoholics and you just absorb everything. And that process is what I based the whole thing on. So he was flipping houses. I worked for him. He had a guy that was financing him out of Connecticut. John went off the rails and the guy in Connecticut started financing flipping with me and his son. There were a lot of properties he was buying left and right. And I was in a sober house in LA in 97, went swimmingly well, of course. <laughs> and, um, I thought I was a guitar player, but I was way more of a junkie than a guitar player. So the short version of that is that I, um, I asked this property owner, I said, eh, you think I could do a sober house in one of these rental properties you keep buying? He was like, I don't care if you don't get me in trouble, go ahead. So I did. And I called John Curtis at the retreat and I said, hey, yeah, I think I'm going to try this. I think I had two years, a little more than two, maybe two years. I was working as a tech at Hazel at Hazelden mm -hmm. and uh, I opened one house and uh, it was always that model. Go, mo go use the community, go engage, go engage, go engage. It wasn't, it was always, it turned into not a housing model, a sober living model very quickly. It's about a lifestyle. It's not about just housing. And it flourished from there. Now there's 12 houses and 100, 100, 112 beds, I think. Something like that. Yeah, I get it. It's kind of like, uh, and you, I, I mean, you, you gave me my whole program. I didn't steal it. Uh, you taught no. me. I will gave it to you. Yeah, you taught me how to do it. There's that AA thing, and you taught me how to do it. And I and I'm the kind of person where if you say, "Here, go do this. Go talk to this guy," most people won't do it. I'll go right. do it. Right. Well, and, that's why you have a a, a thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's like I wanted what you had. Right. It's that whole recovery thing, and um, yeah. you stress group unity. Like that's one of the things, and you say it. I stress group unity. We stress group unity, and that means they're going to connect, and you're going to make them connect. Yeah. And yeah. everything's built around that concept. Everything, every rule in the house is about, it's meant to gauge, are you connecting? It's not just, Hey, did you not drink today? That's not enough. Yeah. And that's what being a sober man is to me about today. It's, and it's weird. Like, you know, like, cause I get on Facebook and I see people they're partying and they're having all this fun. I'm not partying and I'm not having all this fun. I mean, I do have fun, but it's about the connections that we have, right? I'm coming up there. I'm coming up there on Sunday to yeah. see Andrew, who's like one of my best friends, right? right? And like these connections are important. Like they just mean so much to me, right? And it's like I want to take that, and I know you probably do too, and give that to other people. Exactly. I, I'm Andrew's my sponsor, who is, is why you and I met. But you know, when I was. Um, <laughs> I was brand new. I had a year, a year and a half sober, and my therapist, who was giving me all kinds of meds to try to calm me down, I didn't even remember <laughs> everything else. I went to her. I went to her, and she said, "If you don't get a sponsor, I'm not going to see you anymore." And I said, "Well, that's unethical. You can't do that." And she said, "Well, I am." So on that next Monday, I went to this big AA meeting in St. Paul, and probably ninety nine, two thousand, somewhere around there. I was like, "Man, I got to do this sponsor thing." You know, I really wasn't connected. John was guiding me, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And I walked to the door and the greeter was Andrew Wainwright. I had hair down to here. 
he had hair down to his ass and this scowl on his face. And I was like, that's my guy. That's your guy. That's my yeah. guy. He was and so, I, he was so cynical. Oh my God. And I, I look, took one look at him and I was like, he'll get it. And I was just drawn to him. And you know, of course he was like, yeah, okay, I'll be your sponsor, whatever. Turned out to be, you know, one of the brightest guys I know and one of the most thoughtful people I know. He's a, he's a curmudgeon, but that doesn't really matter. You know, and then what he and I did was, you know, his sponsor and that whole connected tree of people, he let me into that. And, you know, that was Lasur and all those and all lots of other people that, you know, you find. And I'm always telling my people in the sober houses, you could meet one person at a meeting who happens to know your sponsor and boom, you're connected and you just find your groove and your crew and you're off to the races. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you stay sober right off the bat. You'll never... You'll never forget what the value of the community is if you engage in it, whether you use or relapse or not. You don't have to be perfect. So, yeah, no, and so you know, and you know a lot of people. Like, like the tree goes way back to when you first got sober. Bobby from Jaywalker, Jim Geckler worked for you, Jordan Hamilton worked for you. These are just guys. I'm. This is the top of my head. Yeah. There's probably dozens or hundreds of people that either came through your program who are still in the industry or worked for you who are in the industry or know you. Um, some might even still like you. Some. <laughs> some. And so like when you started doing sober housing, because the way you have it set up, like what was there at the time? Oxford House? and that's There was it. a few. There was two or three Oxford Houses. The retreat had one or two. Okay. Um, and then there was this guy, um, second step that had about five or six houses and he was the main player in town. There were a few under the radar that weren't really in the, on the scene, so to speak, people's basements, you know, people in sobriety would rent out three rooms in their basement or something. Right. When I started, uh, it was kind of me in the retreat and then, the, and this other one, stepping stones and second step, which are confusing names, but there were a few operators in town, but I jumped in and. I quickly tried to figure out a way to make it a thing that you belong to. I felt like people wanted something they could belong to, right? Like I, when I was using in Boulder and LA and New York, I didn't have a cell phone then. None of us did, but I wasn't invited to anything. I wasn't, I wasn't asked to show up anywhere. And in recovery, if you can put yourself in a position where people would be like, Hey Bryce, Hey Chris, that, that validation of we want you to belong is powerful. And that comes with AA, comes in a weird way with AA, but it comes in a really pure way outside in the fellowship. The barbecue meetings, the going to dinner, the hanging out, you know, you get your crew of buddies and then you start helping the next person and then it just blows up and you can't help but realize I need to be part of this thing and I need to make it possible for other people to be part of this thing yeah yeah so, I, that's, that's the vibe, the vibe. so like so when, when you started, started doing it, it at what point, point did you go, did you go this, this is really, is really special. special like this is going to be like i'm going to keep doing this and we're going to have rules we're going to have you know policies and procedures it's going to be a whole business i'm going to run a company right like owning a sober house and getting your friends sober is one thing right. but when you go you know what? I've got a career on my hands. I, I have a fucking career and a chance to like really make an impact. That happened about 2004, five. I was still running at that company, that property management company for that guy from Connecticut with his son who was turning, taking a hard left on me and not staying sober. And, um, 
and he was having all kinds of trouble with with strippers and lots of other interesting things. And uh, I decided to leave that and do the sober housing full time and pay myself nothing. And I lived in a one bedroom apartment. And it, it's not a sad story. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say I was uh, a, a throw myself on the mercy of this thing. I, I worked hard at it. I think the most profound thing was that I I, I was trying to make it really really feel good to be part of our houses and it was hard without other help I, I got up to five or so or six houses and at that point i hired an alumni aaron casoli who i think you know oh yeah family uh, the interventionist yeah one of my one of my i think it's yeah i think uh clarity family counseling i think it's called he does in, in louisiana he and his wife do phenomenal work. i mean aaron gets it he got it you know he got it from the beginning and he actually lived in Andrew's house after he lived in my sober house. So it's, very, it's very incestuous. The family That's crazy. But this, you know, that that uh, turned into a business. I tortured my friends with questions. I didn't know what I was doing. Wainwright was always in this crazy. I would always say, "Oh my God, I bought another house. I used my brother's name to buy a house. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to pay these mortgages." And you know, I had three or four or five houses, and he was like, "Who cares? You had nothing when you got here. If they take them away from you, so what? Buy another one." And I was like, I never thought I, I never had this entrepreneur spirit or like, you know, was all that ambitious. Really? No, but it just, it just worked. You know, I mean, Hazelden would call and say, we need more beds. You know, the other thing too, is we started to develop this thing in this community in the sober houses in St. Paul, which was attractive and it was getting to be known. I started to go to national conferences and, you know, I'd introduce myself to people and they're like, we know who you are. And we know what your town has. Yeah. 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 It's a it's recovery, recovery destination. destination. Right. And I was just on a Zoom early this morning with a conference, a rural treatment conference in Wisconsin. I was telling treatment professionals, I was like, do your clients a favor and refer them to a community, not just a program you love. Send them where they can do all of this stuff, get a job, meet people, have, go to school. You can do anything here and you can do it in Denver. Denver didn't used to be on the radar when I started. It had a few Oxford houses. Now you guys are just gonzo, it seems like. So For seems a little bit, I was gonzo. I did what you did, but I, I was more calculated. Like I'm, I was like, I want to do a Christed. I want to corner the market, right? And But once I started, people were like onto it. Like there's a lot of people interested in doing sober housing. So there's a lot of companies and I didn't waste time like – like getting upset with other people for doing what I was doing. I just kept, I don't know, eyes forward, eye on the prize. I had nine houses. a short time doing that, being being territorial and being mostly scared. I, I, t I told one lady who was starting off, I told, well, this guy that started buying silver houses, and I told him off one time, and he's like, what are you mad at me for? And I was like, I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I think I'm scared and I'm sorry. <laughs> this is my thing. You can't I made do it. an ass of myself. And, uh, you know, so only I can help people. It's, I spent too much energy doing that. It was I did it, but it wasn't very long. And and and, and my sponsor helped me get out of that. But um, yeah, yeah. I get it. So when you come to St. Paul, like, and it's hard to like for people to go, yeah, whatever. But I'm just going to explain it. When you come to St. Paul Sober Living, which is the same as mine. Um, you're going to get drug tested twice a week. There's a required certain amount of meetings. You don't get a TV in your room. You're going to get a roommate, not because we're trying to make more money, because you can't isolate. Isolation kills addicts and alcoholics. Too dangerous so, to go into a single room by yourself in the beginning. Right. And everybody says the same thing. I do better by myself, and I have a dog. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. say a lot of things, right? Yeah. You don't do better by yourself and your dog is going to be just fine at home with your parents or your girlfriend or your wife or whatever. And so you make people get a job. You you make them go to meetings. They get a sponsor um, or they can get a job, go to school, IOP, like outpatient treatment. They got to do something. Sitting on the couch all day is not going to happen or they're going to have to hear from you, which is like worse than getting a job, right? I used to tell every sponsee I ever had, tell me what you did for the last seven days. And I guarantee you it was mostly sitting on the couch thinking about yourself. Yeah. And, and if you, if you want to sit and think the shit out of yourself, you're not going to do anything. And you've got to move. You're at, it matters where, where your ass is, not where your head is in early sobriety. You've got to get out there and move. So what you were saying about the rules in the house, which seems somewhat, you know, I don't know, trite or controlling and people move in curfew and you can't, you got to do your chore. And it seems a little bit adolescent to a lot of older people, but later on they see that that structure actually allowed them to go engage because all that stuff made sense and it worked. Right. Yeah. I did yeah. get out of bed. I did have a clean room. I did do my laundry. I did show up at work. If you don't show up at work, you don't have a job. If you don't have a job. You don't have money. If you don't have money. You can't eat or pay your rent. So all those practical things, that addicts tend to forego when they're using and all that falls apart. You have to try to convince them to rebuild that kind of innocuous, boring structure stuff so that you can have this feel good new life thing go on. You, you can't do one without the other. Right. So a good sober house has thoughtful rules, not overly burdensome rules. You don't want the military style of everybody's screaming at every one dish in the sink. I think that's dumb. I think you should walk in a sober house on a Sunday morning and if there's pizza boxes all over the place because they all had pizza together on Saturday night, then that's a cool, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's just uh, clutter. Yeah. That's not, that's not filth. No, it's yeah. awesome. Like if there's a good fight on TV, you'll yeah. get it for the guys, right? You'll get them yeah. a pizza. They me, the UFC they want or the NFL package, it depends on the crew. We don't, we just, you know, we offer it up anytime they want to get more connected. Right. want to support it. Also what you do is, which also seems trite and dumb is sports and barbecues and picnics and it's not contrite and it's not dumb because that's where it all happens that's where you start to have another life and you told me you know i don't care if they're there talking shit about each other they're engaged yeah. Yeah. right that's right. what it looks like and think about this too when you're in treatment for a month and you're surrounded by a bunch of phds and you're doing all this tech you know clinical work with all these people with letters behind their name it's kind of a triage, right? You get you get your body and your mind and you know physically safe and, and you know, get some starch in your system and you feel a little bit better. And they pop you out the door at the end of 30 days and you haven't really, nobody really knows who you are. You get to the sober house and you have a same roommate for five months sleeping next to each other. You really start to say, this is who I really am. And if when you come out and say, this is who I really am, you don't get shamed or you even just get that opportunity to say, this is the person I am and the people around your house are like, cool, man, we got your back. So one of the things we do in the sober house, and I, I think I showed you this early on was when you do this, when you do the sober house meeting every week, which is absolutely mandatory, the way we create a, we create a sort of a sense of that meeting that every resident in that house knows I'm going to go sit in that house meeting and I'm going to get asked questions and I better have an answer, right? It's not a, a contentious thing. The questions are, tell me about your week. Tell me how you're feeling. They tell you. And then we turn to the rest of the group and say, is that what you guys see? 
it was that synopsis of Bryce's week. Ah, my boss is kind of a dick, but I have a job and, you know, I'm doing okay, blah, blah, blah. My parents are coming to visit. And your roommates better say, that sounds about right. Because if your roommates say, I don't know, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. He's never here. If they say that, you got a problem, right? Because yeah. you don't get anything from the group if you don't give them some transparency. And you can't give them some view of your and transparent view of your life if you're not around. So you can't just sleep there. You got to show up. You don't have to be best friends with everybody. You can have other friends. It's not, you know, it's not crazy. Right. But you're doing, so I, I want to make a distinction between like, uh, you know, and I'm not putting down anything. I'm not, I would never put down a halfway house. People need these kind of houses. They need these transitional houses for prison near entry. But what we're doing is addiction. It's treatment for addiction. And it's kind of like what treatment centers don't do. They kind of tout that they do these things. Oh yeah. We're community all day long. It's like, no, you're not. You're not, there's no community in 30 days. They're locked away. You've got them under lock and key. This is where the magic of recovery happens. And that's what you're doing with all these things. And you know it. And I know it. And I think, and you've seen the industry change because you've been doing this since 98. Well, 2001 was the first house, but yeah. Okay. Um, and so like, and I know that and I, what I loved about that time I learned from you was that all the conversations with you and your staff are about how do we do a better job? How do, how are we going to help this guy? How are we going to help these people? I don't recall any conversations about how are we going to get more insurance days or how are we going to make more money? And I'm not trying to be a jerk, no, but I it's yeah. true. And yeah. so I honestly, you sent me back to Denver unprepared <laughs> because I thought we were supposed to help everybody. I thought that's what we were doing. And lo and behold, I found out that is not everybody's uh, business plan. That's not how, that's not what they're doing. Um, I'm not saying people don't get well in treatment centers and that in these other things they do, but um, there's something missing. And I think you know what it is. And it's this connection piece. Like it's not where you get sober. It's like, where you stay sober that first year. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a there there's a housing there's a triage treatment model. There's a lot of housing models where you've got, you know, a place to sleep. And then there's a sober living model. You know, and it's a repurposed lifestyle. And you're right. We we don't call ourselves treatment, but we are treating them in a sense and the strongest medicine or most impactful thing you can ever throw at addiction and alcoholism is another alcoholic who's got a few years and the, and the light came on to whatever degree, right? I mean, I could, I remember very vividly starting to notice the people in this community. I was like, the lights come on for that guy. He's, he's got some peace to him, right? You hear that you should go look for people who have what you want, right? And I always said, well, go look for people who have what they want right, who have really landed in the life they, they built sober and they've got something to share, a real, a real mo momentum, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's kind of like about, uh, I, I don't know, I got to a point in my sobriety where it's like, what, there's got to be more to this. Like, you know, for me, it's like about like a sense of, of purpose, like a reason to wake up every day rather than just go to an AA meeting and share what I did the first year of my sobriety. Um, 
you know. Yeah. I know there's more I want to talk about, man. Um, well, we can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> I don't know exactly. How are you, you doing, Bryce? Do you want to talk about your day? Yeah, no, it was a crazy, crazy busy day. Um, so I want to talk about – so you did something called the Plus Pro Program. And right. so – so, so like, I think when you started, it was 30 days of treatment and then sober living. And I don't even think aftercare and outpatient treatment was really a thing, or was it? No, nah, not so much. There was primary care, there's some aftercare or, or um, not aftercare, uh, transitional care or extended care, halfway house. Halfway house, kind of that term belongs to the prison people. And about 2002, they took it back, or 2004. And we stopped, we stopped hearing halfway house and started hearing extended care treatment light but really it was a way that you could go continue to pay your treatment center and go get a job and it was good i mean i had people go to 30 days at hazelden in five months in the extended care and then six months in the sober house this idea was that's a 12 month now you got a year that's awesome i love that yeah but i mean the reality of it is, is you do need a year so that shifted. The extended cares kind of went away. There's still some of them. And IOP sort of flooded in there, and that has a lot more to do with what insurance will let you to let you bill for. They love IOP because it doesn't include any of the other stuff. They don't want to pay for when you're asleep. Insurance doesn't want to pay when you're in the cafeteria or in your bed. They only want to pay for you when you're in group. And so IOP cuts out everything except that hour or those nine hours or ten hours a week. I mean, you own one. You know how it goes. That's my sort of layman's problem. I've never run an IOP, but that's sort of the way it looks like to me. So we brought people in from primary typically, but now we bring people in from all kinds of angles. So the plus program is Sober Living Plus. It was 2011. I decided I was losing a lot of people. I was losing some young people and people with issues like trauma, eating disorders, that kind of stuff. And I couldn't really just become a treatment center. So I got together with some really smart people. Bobby Ferguson was one of them, tortured Andrew Wainwright about this, and thought I could do this thing. I would add these services to the sober house, but they weren't clinical. It was, where do people fail in early recovery, and how do we give them that stuff? And then how, and then the only way to give them that stuff is to add staff, and to add staff, you add payroll, to add payroll, you have to charge more. So it's that simple. So we took what people failed on. They failed on... Time management is kind of the big bucket, like organized. I'm doing my sober life and I'm doing the other things in my life to make my life function. Money, medications, and that I was engaged. In other words, how do we, how do we know if you're engaged, right? If I go to the sober house and I was like, hey, man, are you meeting people? Yeah, I'm meeting all kinds of people. I'm having lots of fun out. So those are really hard things to gauge, right? Yeah. So we didn't just add services to sober living. We added what we saw were the pitfalls. And for younger people, especially money, you know, parents were like, my kid's going through money, won't get a job, doesn't show up at all the strength appointments and I have to pay for him anyway because he doesn't cancel them. I have, you know, girls cutting themselves in the house, eating disorder stuff. And so we said, screw it. Let's just surround them with more support. And if instead of kicking them out because the eating disorders going on, we'll try to get them into an outpatient for eating disorder. It's not that hard to do. It just takes staff. So the plus program added on plus the sober living plus these services are really designed for what people failed on in early recovery 
that tends to be younger people, but I've got 50 year olds in the plus program who can't tie their shoes and it's working out just fine. So we all know some of them. Yeah, we do. And so like, it felt like we had, you know, you had residential treatment and then, so their idea was to do PHP and then their idea was to do IOP and then their idea is to do, you know, GOP. And so it's, it's counseling and not so much life skills like what you're talking about. And so your idea was to come from the sober living angle and add services to that, right? And so if you combine all that, you've got a super structured continuum of care yeah. for that first year. And and you're right. Like, and I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the term failure to launch, but these, I don't like, like it. yeah, yeah, these failure to launch kids, these kids, uh, it's sad because they're dying and they don't really have a chance. It felt like, uh, I got into an argument with a guy at a conference. I can't remember his name. It was one of those big conferences and he kept joking. I kept hearing him say it all over the place. Like he learned a new word or something. <laughs> failure to launch. And I went over to him and I said, you know, it's a terrible thing to say about somebody's kid, you know? I mean, I get it. It, it, it makes sense contextually, but it doesn't feel good. No, well. So right. all those things we're talking about, engage, engage, engage. Why do some people not engage? Because they're shy, because they're resentful, because they, they're obstinate, because they have, you know, uh, authority issues. Generally, they just haven't found where they felt included. And we're battling with the younger guys and the girls and the screens and that, you know, everything's that's, that's harder. But, um, you know, for example, we wake in the plus program, you got to get up at eight o'clock in the morning. You got to come down to the living room and sit in the house living room and say what you're doing today. What are yeah. you doing today? I already know the things you're supposed to be doing today. So that should be on the list that you're about to say, but maybe you're going to go have lunch with a friend also. Let's hear it. Right. And then later, if you're back in your room and say, hey, I thought you said you were going to. So we don't push them out the door or yell at them or force them. But we just keep saying, eh, I thought you were going to do that. I thought you were going to do this. Do you want to go do that? And try to get out, get out of the room, get out of the room, go engage. Right. COVID just killed us. I mean, we sat around staring at each other with me making this speech and everyone's looking at me like, yeah, can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> so that was brutal. And we're just, you know, we're just inching our way out of that. I hear you, man. I, I'm the plus program. I went with Josh Miller from Choice House. He took me there and you're right. It was funny. I was comical. You, you wake them up at 8 a.m. They right. come down the stairs with their blanket. <laughs> they don't wake up. Right. If they're, if they get, if they're on MAT, they get their Suboxone, whatever. Josh says, well, what'd you do yesterday? Did you, did you meet your sponsor? Did you play kickball? Did you really? Oh, you didn't. Okay, well, make sure you do it today. And then they go to the next guy, right? And then I have a feeling they all went back to bed. To a degree they do. But after a while, it dissipates. You never get 100%, right? right. Some yeah. of them are going to go back to bed. I remember having a conversation with this guy, this kid. He wouldn't do anything. said no to everything. And, and, and I mean, CrossFit, the barbecues, volleyball, kickball. I mean, kickball is pretty low barrier to entry. Anybody can kick that thing. You don't have to be an athlete. And the, um, and I said, I said to this kid, I said, you know, you say no to everything. And he's like, I know. And I said, why? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> well, there you go. I, yeah. I mean, let's talk about this, dude. That's right. Thing. You got to say yes to something. So maybe don't do that. Right. We try. 
Yeah, no, I, I hear you. But um, now I, IOP is is a big part of it. And, you know, we get people coming from major treatment centers to the PLUS program or to a traditional bed, which has without all those services. They're all in IOP. So it's, yeah. it's, 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 just a, it, it's just a thing now. It just is a thing. Well, my people are in IOP, literally. Uh, they... <laughs> Most, my average client's been to residential five times. That's the average. That means there's one guy that's been there 20. Right. <laughs> and so they come, they go to PHP, which is really just it's an insurance term. I know. Meaning, meaning you're in group for 30 hours. You see your therapist once, probably twice a week. You see a, you know, a, someone to prescribe you meds. Um, and then you drop down to IOP. And when you drop down to IOP, I want you to have a part-time job. Yeah. And it's good because there's a therapist, a qualified therapist. I am not a qualified therapist. I don't know if you consider yourself good at that stuff. I am not. We have a therapist uh, we started aligning ourselves with in Minneapolis, and he's since bought another building in St. Paul and filled it up with therapists, and he's he's almost 100% our clients, two, yeah. doors, two doors down from my office. Yeah. And so I, stay this out of, I stay out of the clinical world. I had some LADCs for a little while in the beginning. Because Hazelden and the bigger treatment centers were like, well, if you're going to be more than a sober house, you've got to have some clinical oversight. And I was like, why? Just trust me to do this social model stuff. Just trust me to do this. It matters more where your ass is than where your head is philosophy. And they're like, we can't really put that in a box. They don't know what the <laughs> hell that is. Right. Now they're all trying to – now three or four years ago, Hazelden paid me $20,000 to go teach them how to do this in New York City. Because it works, dude. It yeah. works. But I'm finding if you can have like if with the with the clinical oversight for I mean for a year when they're doing GOP at the end of the year, but that IOP around four, five, six months, that's where they usually go off the rails, fall apart, relapse, and then it's just like when do they end up back in residential? I like but, the IOP better than the extended yeah. care. I I think it's great. I think it's sort of it's almost like treatment daycare for people in the, you know, when you're coming into the community and you still got your IOP group and you're getting a little bit into the community and then you drop down in some hours, you get a part-time job, you ease your way in. I mean, this is the story of people since 2001 in St. Paul. I just ran into a guy who's from 2005. He was at a coffee shop the other day and I knew he was moving back to Montana where his family was. He just had two kids and, uh, you know, he gave me a big hug and he's like, dude, you know, my whole life started at the St. Clair house in 2005. I'm still talking to the same two idiots that I lived in that house with. Right. And, uh, you know, and he was like, you know, I remember when we carried the TV, you made us carry the TV upstairs. And in those days we had those giant, what do you call them? Projection. TVs, right? <laughs> yeah. He, uh, you know, I made the guys, they wanted it upstairs. I'm already got to carry it up there to the other living room. And, just little stories like that. A, a friend of mine who's a roofing contractor who's doing my roof on my personal home next week on Tuesday called me today to talk about the roof. And he, and he, go, he lived at one of the St. Clair houses. I, I named my houses after the streets. And he just got 10 years. And, the, I mean, this guy was a, a Academy Award-winning crackhead. I mean, the guy has gold statues of awards in crack smoking, and he got 10 years. So... <laughs> It's unbelievable. There's a lot of those stories, a lot of sad stories too, but yeah, I think the big picture is that social model recovery, you know, let's just look at it this way. You can spend 40 grand a month to go to treatment. I can probably treat you for a year and a half for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, Andrew gave me a speech early on about like, if you've got $30,000, it's awesome if you can go to inpatient for that. If you can't take it, 
detox at a local hospital. I'm not telling anybody to do this, by the way, right. but but you can, and then do sober living for a long time. Long time, right. right? Just keep coming back until you hear that big popping sound when your head pops out of your ass, and then you're like, oh. This is actually good for me. Right. That, that sound may not come for a few months, several months. I don't know, you know, but you can see it when the light comes on with people. And that's the coolest part, right? Yeah, it is. And I get addicted to kind of like that, like when oh, people I'm get sure better. People. It's I'm awesome. Sure. And I have it now after five years. There's people there that are five years sober. They're hanging around. They're coming by. Um, you know, some of them are trying to do their laundry. It's like, get the fuck out of here. You can't do your laundry anymore. Uh, but it's a whole community of people that are sober. I have women and men from my programs 15 years ago that are, have children together, alumni that have SPSL children. And yeah. I, just, I, I make, you know, get some onesies made and send them out. It's un unbelievable. Yeah. So, it's amazing. And you know, another thing you taught me and then we'll get off of here, but, uh, and it's true is that you, I don't even know if you told me this. I think you did. You said, if you can make them care about each other, yeah. your job is going to be so much easier. And I tell my house managers that all day long. I, yeah. I know they're fighting. I know someone took his Oreos, right? If you can get them to care about each other, your life will be so much easier. Yeah. I get, I do some consulting as I did with you and a lot of sober house operators come to me and they're like, what do I do? They're just killing each other over somebody ate my peanut butter. And I said, <laughs> And the dishes. And I said, you're never going to get all the dishes done. You've got to get over that. And you've got to get them to care about each other. And the dishes won't matter. The dishes will get done enough if they care about each other. And then, so there's no penalty or, you know, curfew changes for not doing your dishes or fines. That's all bullshit in my opinion. But the reality of it is, is as a sober house operator, you have to understand that they will come to you one day and say, I want to call the FBI because someone ate my Oreos. And I'll tell you one last story. I was in a sober house in Los Angeles in 1997. It was a bunch of industry people. I went there because I was a musician and I was told that's where all the musicians go. And it was, wasn't really like that, but there were a lot of musicians. And so we're in this sober house. There's 24 guys in this big sober house near the Beverly center. I think somewhere in century city, Beverly Hills. I can't remember exactly the, that's not my turf, but um, they had the house meeting and they, somebody raised their hand and said, somebody took, some of my Oreos. And that happens in, a, in every house meeting. Somebody says, somebody ate my or took my socks or whatever. And some manager locked onto this thing. And by an hour later, we were the, the owner was there and they were like, nobody's leaving this room until somebody fesses up who took the Oreos. I mean, it just, it turned into a thing, right? And the whole house is like, fuck you. And, oh, excuse me, screw you, okay. screw you. Somebody fess up and people are starting to say, I did it, you know, and just, it was crazy. And they're like, you're never, you're not going to bed until the person fesses up. Somewhere around, I don't know, midnight or something, they just gave up and sent us all to bed because nobody was, nobody was going to fess up. <laughs> I, I took the Oreos. I took them, absolutely took them, at, you know, ate them in my room. I didn't have any money. And uh, <laughs> here's the interesting thing. I hadn't even given, I never gave a thought to raising my hand. I never even considered fessing. <laughs> it didn't even enter my brain. I just sat there like, God, this is crazy. Never Why? even thought about it. Why not? Because the vibe was off? It you're just, just didn't occur to me, to be honest. It never, <laughs> it never did in those days, right? It just wasn't a thing, right? 
Uh-huh. Like, oh man, I got to tell the truth. I didn't know what, that's not what went on in my head then. <laughs> Ever. It just wasn't even a thought. That's great, dude. So uh, real quick, when you added women sober living, uh, what was that like? Well, first I had women who some uh, the treatment centers were super worried that we were going to cross boundaries and you know, a bunch of guys managing girls and all that kind of stuff. And they got a little bit funny about that. And we had to constantly tell them, you know, oh, we're not going over there as much. The women are managing the house. It didn't really matter. You know, I mean, the reality of it is, is I found very quickly that I was more helpful to the women when I went to do their house meetings. If I, I, I had women managers, but I did some of the house meetings myself. And I just never gave them any sense that there was any worry from them, from me. I wasn't judging them. I wasn't hitting on them. It was, you know, it's oh, crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, uh, the women, you know, it's different. And lots of people like to say, you know, women are from Mars and men are from Venus or maybe I got that backwards, but they, the general, the general theory that we've been talking about this connection thing, it's the same. Yeah. And I have three LGBTQ sober houses. It's the same. It's all the same. I remember when I first started my first LGBTQ house in Minneapolis, a gay, it was pretty much all gay men. And I told my buddy Fabian, who's, who's my lawyer and happens to be gay. I said, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is not my people. And he was like, so what? Just te- do the same thing you do with everybody else. It's about sobriety. Don't, he said, don't let them fool you that they're special because they will try. So anyway, that, that's the the message is the same for everybody. The right. Is absolutely the same for everybody. I and had a guy. I had a guy. I went down all the rules and we get to the end and he signed it. He goes, I identify as genderqueer. And I said, all right. The rules are the same, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he was like, all right. Yeah. No special rules. Yeah. Okay, okay great. Go to a meeting. <laughs> Right? No, you're right. It's the yeah. same, right? Have you had any problems like that? I've had zero problems, no discrimination, no. Uh, nothing like that. No, I mean, I've had people come out in the middle of a house meeting. I mean, it's just it's it's an incredible atmosphere, and you know, there's they're they're all there for the same reason. So if you try if you try to you know if you're going to be a hypocrite, you're going to look ridiculous. Uh, granted, it's messy. You know, people come some get people get angry, and you know things get real and you know, it's hard living with 10 people or seven or nine or 12 or whatever it is. Um, and it, and it wears on you. We, we try to do little tricks that we can do. I, I try to set up houses with two areas where there's televisions. I try to have a lot of refrigerators. I try to take a little bit of the elbow room, the things that crunch you and make you feel like you're living with too many people. If there's not enough refrigerator space or food storage space, or I can't get to the laundry, you know, in one of the houses in Colorado or two, I think we have two laundry setups, you know, anywhere you can make a little more elbow room. Mm-hmm. Because if people stay longer, the house gets healthier. And then everybody that comes in after that in a healthy house gets a great thing. And I often remind the residents, you guys have to have a healthy environment. You owe it to the person who's about to walk through that door. That girl can't come into this house with you guys screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. I had one women's house one time where they, they, they called me down there. They had a knockdown drag out fight about somebody ate somebody's raspberries. And I, I, and one of the women said, Chris, I have the package upstairs. Would you, the empty package, would you like me to go get it? And I was like, the FBI is not coming to fingerprint. Throw it away. Come on, let's get real here. Right. Turns out that they just didn't like her. She had money and she was ordering food and buying clothes and none of them had any money. They're all resentful. 
and you know, she ate somebody's raspberries, they wanted to kill her. That stuff's gonna happen. But if you can, if you are engaged with your group in the sober house as a house manager or operator, and they trust you and you work some of this stuff out, it's not group therapy every day. This is just the best we can do at a weekly house meeting. They'll work through, they'll walk away from that stuff and they won't, if you do nothing, those things will fracture your house. They'll fracture it and everyone will go to their silos and it's a, and it's a not a healthy house. And then somebody's going to relapse and let's just face it. You don't know any, whoever relapses, it's Russian roulette. They're, you know, especially with fentanyl these days. Yeah. Somebody just is like, ah, screw it. I'm going to use once and they're gone. Yeah. It's yeah. just too dangerous. It is. It's too dangerous. It's a real thing and people are dying and it's young people usually. Uh, so I think, you know, in all these things and you, you should do more consulting, man. Like, you can because like so many things happen and there's no school for this. Right. Crazy things are going to happen all the time. And it's like so good to be able to call and say, Chris, check this one out. And you'll even be like, yeah, that's a good one. I never heard of that one before. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's like, here's what you're going to yeah. do. And it, the, the, the overall thing is that uh, people are getting well. Um, they are healing. Yeah. And it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have gone to like a super quality structured sober living like St. Paul. If you don't have a safe place to lay your head, you're not going to do any work. You're going to do anything. You got right. a safe place to go. Yeah. Right. And I get it all the time. Like they'll say, yeah, I don't, I don't care if you require three months. I don't see myself staying past 30 days. And then when it approaches three months, they're like, I don't want to leave. Like, yeah. I like it or I'm scared or whatever. Early on, we had this six month commitment, I think it was, and then we turned it to three. And then I was like, you guys forget about it. It doesn't matter. They, they hate it. They want to leave in 30 days. Let them go. But if, if you engage, if you engage, they end up just like, oh, this is good for me. Yeah, and I, I'm always trying to get my staff to watch for that. Watch for people when you see them start to really get something back from their effort and acknowledge that. Say something. Hey, you seem more comfortable. You seem like you found a friend. That's cool, man. I like to. I can sense something in you that you're get it, something's clicking here. You seem happier. Has nothing to do with twelve steps, God, the pills he's taken. Has nothing to do with whatever meds she's on. It just is like, hey, you seem more comfortable. It's it's huge. This is one of the things that I, when I do consulting projects, I find that staff and especially sober livings that are connected to treatment centers or their big operations, they tend to just comp, they just do uh, compliance. They're like, did you do this? Did you do this? Or the, count the heads. Everybody's showed up for this. And I was like, when, when are you going to ask them how their day went? You know, when yeah. are you going to say, Hey, it's cool. You got a job, right? I yeah. put, we put stuff on Facebook every day. Like so-and-so got a job and I pay Facebook $10 to boost the, to boost it. So his mom sees it. You know, yeah. So you've you've stepped back a little bit too. Uh, you've hired a couple people. I know you have an executive first, director. First now. time I've had an executive director. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, Matt Mortensen. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm going to see him on Monday. You're going to see him on. You're, you'll you'll find out why why I hired him. Good. Probably the same reason I hired Jill because I can't do it anymore. Well, you know, I mean, hire smarter, right? Dude, yeah. Like, I, if you're lucky, you attract the right people. And um, I don't I don't even want to go back to doing it. I, it's just, like, so awesome to have to trust that position to somebody who's, like, in it for the right reasons, living the 12-step, talking about connection, just like you're, like, 
talking right now. Right. And, you know, Matt's a guy with five years who really changed his life. Really, it wasn't good for Matt. And he wasn't a, you know, junkie like me getting sticking needles in his arms. He was just a classic drunk and he was just a, he didn't have a life. And, and you talk to him for 20 minutes, you're going to be like, the guy's really glad he's sober. Yeah. He comes out of him, right? He's not a preacher of anything. He's very practical. He's very down to earth. And, you know, I told him when he when I hired him, I said, look, I've, I've sort of bloated SPSL with a lot of employees and a lot of stuff we probably shouldn't be doing and we're spending a lot of money. And I told him, I said, take everything out of the closet and only put back what you think we need and don't tell me what you're going to throw away. And he did that. Really? And I, and I made him put some stuff back from the garbage bag. <laughs> All stuff. right. That's that cool. Was, that, was the, that was the concept, yeah. Well, I appreciate you. I talk about you all the time. I go all over the country, and if I if I mention your name and they know you, I say he taught me how to do. He taught me how to do this, and I don't know what they think about you. It never comes up. They always just say that's good. That's that's the best sober living there is. St. Paul's the best. I, I mean, I think we have a good reputation. You know, there's a there's a one or two people that are former residents for the most part that might say that guy's the biggest asshole in the world, and I would say like. Well, you and the other three go have a reunion party because it's been 20 years and there's three of them. <laughs> what am I going to do about that? You know? I hear you. You yeah. got kicked out and you're still mad. I, yeah. I, have, I have a guy that calls my office every time, every year, once a year at Christmas time. God damn it. And he's still drunk and yells on the voicemail every year like clockwork. And I, I just say, oh, yeah, that's Ross. He does that every year. He's still mad. Got kicked out in 2006. All right. Well, I'm hey. sure you. I'm sure you didn't fail, Ross. I hope he uh, gets it he tried, together. He tried hard for Ross. Yeah. I hope he gets it together. Good luck, Ross. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, man. Uh, it was really an honor for me because I, I, I have, it, have I got a massive amount of respect for you and your program, and you showed me how to do it, and you gave me like this whole new career. I've had a whole bunch of clients in consulting since you, and most of them have not worked as hard as you have. So, congratulations to you and. Uh, We'll see you next week when you come right out. On. I'll see you there. All right.